Good evening. Please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 1 to 7, then we'll pray, and we'll get started. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you're her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honour to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray. Merciful God, we thank you for not leaving us in the dark about anything that matters to you. We thank you that your word is a comprehensive and clear guide to everything that matters to you and therefore is a comprehensive and clear guide to everything that ought to matter to us. And as we think this evening about the subject of what it means to be ladies and gentlemen, we ask that you'd open our eyes to things that we have blinded ourselves to, which our culture has lost sight of, which we want to recover because we want to be like Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. So, a few months ago, the Mayor of London, Mr. Sadiq Khan, made an announcement. This was um, following some earlier comments about a year and a half ago. He announced publicly that, quote, London Transport, the Mayor is responsible for London Transport, London Transport will no longer refer to ladies and gentlemen in announcements and so on. You know, when you're on the platform and you're waiting for a train... Ladies and gentlemen, this is to inform you that the train is even more late than usual, etc. Um, no longer ladies and gentlemen. The reason, Mr. Khan explained, for this decision was, and I quote once again, to ensure that transport for London is always inclusive and sensitive to the needs of all Londoners, unquote. Presumably including people who ni neither identify as ladies or gentlemen. All of which generated a predictable range of responses. Some cheered from the sidelines at this great victory for progressiveness and diversity, while others sort of shook their head in disbelief and how ridiculous the whole thing was. But what I want to do just briefly as we begin tonight is to look behind the presenting issues of this farcical nonsense to what's really going on here. It's always important when you, when you encounter a cultural issue like this to try and scratch below the surface and see what's driving this, what's happening. And it strikes me there are two related cultural trends at work here. The first has been going on for decades, absolutely decades, uh, our culture has been denying the created differences between men and women. 
Our culture has been, and we've been complicit in this in many ways as a church. The church has failed to speak out against this as clearly as we might have done. Uh, Our culture has been making again and again this basic mistake that equality equals sameness. And has been clearly and unequivocally declaring that there's no difference at all between men and women. And you want to see the, the issue really, really clearly for what it is. We want to articulate the need for equality of dignity between men and women. Equality of the honour and the worth that we have in the sight of God. Equality before the law. But equality is not sameness. The culture has got it wrong in saying that men and women are the same. But this movement has been gaining momentum for decades. The reason why uh, the mayor felt it necessary to make this announcement when he did is because there's a second trend which has been much more recent. Of course, if if there's no actual substantive difference between men and women, if it's simply a socially constructed phenomenon, maleness and femaleness, then there's no reason why you can't change from one to another or indeed to something else. You could choose your identity. You could choose your gender identity. If it's not hardwired into you, what's to stop you changing back and forth and choosing who you are? And therefore, at the risk of offending, uh, uh, in order to avoid the risk of offending this tiny percentage of people, whoever they are, who don't want to be called either male or female, Um, the mayor announced that his staff would no longer use the words ladies and gentlemen. So, uh, it's about time, isn't it, that we thought about a positive and constructive and faithful response to this as a church. And it is never possible to change the culture without changing the church first, is it? Repentance begins at home. Judgment begins at the house of God. Remember last time we were thinking your relationship with God, our relationships with each other. Only then will we be in any kind of shape to say anything to the world. Do not expect the world to listen to you talking to them about what it means to be male and what it means to be female unless we have it sorted out clearly among ourselves. And that is uh, the task, at least to begin the process of thinking about that this evening. Not begin, I, I, I trust that you have thought about this before but to continue thinking and perhaps to explore a few issues in more detail. So to begin that process, I want to just give you one illustration to keep in your minds. Sometimes it's helpful, isn't it, to have like a mental picture of something. How should we think about relationships between men and women in general? Here I'm thinking, I guess particularly about relationships in marriage and That's a relationship which all you young people are not in at the moment, but which I guess, just statistically speaking, the majority of you will be destined for, and you may as well get ready for the future, right? I'm thinking partly about that, but also in a derivative sense about the kinds of ways in which you ought to be relating to each other now. It's no good, you know, 16-year-old young man, 17-year-old lady, uh, just blithely going along as though she doesn't need to think or he doesn't need to think about what it is to be a woman, what it is to be a man. And then suddenly, you know, somebody proposes to you and it's like, right, now what do I do? It's like too late already. So we want to be thinking now about how to conduct ourselves as men and women, ladies and gentlemen, now. So here's the overriding image. First, it's not a competition. The relationship between men and women is not a competition. It's not men and women fighting against each other. It's not if one wins, the other loses. There are no prizes, gentlemen, for arm wrestling a woman. Okay? Husbands, 
Obviously, you could beat her, and that's not the aim of your life. We shouldn't be thinking of our relationships as a competition, one against another, obviously. Second, it's not, and this is more likely to be our temptation in our culture today, it is not the image of soldiers marching side by side. Men and women are not like soldiers marching side by side. Why not? I'm looking around to see the, where's the soldier. I can't see him. When soldiers are marching side by side, what are they supposed to do? Different things? No, the same thing. The quality of an infantry unit on parade is measured by the degree to which all their movements are identical. And so we shouldn't think of the relationship between men and women as a conflict, a kind of relational arm wrestling match. We shouldn't think of it as a marching in lockstep, everything he does I need to do because otherwise I'm not a proper woman. Everything she does I need to do, otherwise I'm not a proper man. That's not the way to think about it. The way to think about the relationship between men and women is a dance. A dance where it's absolutely essential for the two partners in a dance to be doing different things, complementing each other, each of them striving to enhance the other's appearance, trying to make your partner look better at what he or she is doing, giving yourselves to each other, not moving in the same way, but moving in harmony with one another. That's the overriding image I want to be thinking about this evening. And basically what we're doing is learning the dance moves. Okay? How is it that I as a man am supposed to... I'm not in a dance, okay? It's so tempting, kind of all this space on the stage, and I feel like I'm... Don't look at me like that, Pastor Jeff. I'm not going to... No, stop it. Nothing will... No. But, so you're in this kind of relational dance. Men and women, married. Some of you at the back. Going to be married, most of you here. Not married, but just, you know, as a guy from church or a guy or girl you met here at uh, Summer Sanctus. How are you supposed to relate to each other? You've got to learn the dance moves, okay? And that's what we're going to do. So I'm going to talk first specifically to the ladies... Verses 1 to 6, although there will be some things here that, gentlemen, it will be very good for you to listen to. And then vice versa, secondly, to the gentleman, verse 7. So, ladies, you ready? Verse 1 and 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Notice the central instruction at the start of verse 1. Wives, what does it say? Be subject be subject. At the risk of stating the obvious, let me say that this does not mean be a doormat. This does not mean expect to get trodden on. It certainly doesn't mean tolerate being trodden on, tolerate abuse, tolerate neglect. I'm going to talk about this a little bit more later on. Uh, The Bible teaches that wives in particular and women in general should be protected from negligent and abusive husbands. Divorce is there for that reason. God hates divorce for the same reason that you hate the sound of ambulance sirens. Why do you hate the sound of ambulance sirens? Because it means that somebody's sick or somebody's been hit by a truck. I hate this. I live on a main-ish road in London, okay, and Ambulance sirens go past quite often. I hate the sound of ambulance sirens. But boy, I'm glad that there are ambulance sirens there because if somebody finds themselves a victim of somebody else's carelessness or just you know, an accident of providence, I'm really glad that there's an ambulance to clear up the mess and to help them and to transport them out. So I hate divorce. I hate divorce. There are people at the church where I minister who are divorced and 
It's ruinous, but boy, it's better than that lady being with her husband. Because that was, that was worse, you know. Submit or be subject to your husbands does not mean to tolerate abuse or neglect. Rather, what it means, and this is in common with the sort of thing that I hope you're familiar with elsewhere in the Bible, places like Ephesians 5, it means that wives are called to recognize and to encourage their husbands' God-given responsibility to exercise sacrificial leadership in the home. Wives are called to recognize that their husbands are called to sacrifice in order to lead. They're called to encourage and make space for him to do that. First time, when you first get married, you discover your husband isn't Jesus. And he takes time sometimes to learn. Well, you pick carefully because you want to pick somebody who's at least trying to learn, but you create space for him and you give him the chance to mess up and then to say sorry and then to do better next time as he tries and tries harder and tries harder still to sacrifice like Jesus taught him to sacrifice to lead you in the home which means your husband and you see what we're now doing is talking about ladies but talking indirectly to the gentleman a husband is responsible before God for providing for his wife a husband is responsible before God for honoring her a husband is responsible before God for encouraging his wife's faith and his godliness He's responsible for taking the initiative in the kinds of decisions that are involved in leading a family. If a family uh, are not praying together, if a family are not eating together, if a family are not worshipping God together, it's the husband's responsibility to sort it out. It's the husband's responsibility to think through the issues of how to consistently and lovingly raise and discipline and encourage their children. And the wife is called to recognise that these are his responsibilities and to leave space for him. That's what it means to be subject. It doesn't mean under the thumb. It means to, to look to this man and to just step back enough from the place where the decisions need to be made so that he has space to do it. And, and every guy here who's married knows you know, how long does it take to get the hang of this, guys? It's like, you know... You're like, how long, how long will it take now still? Yeah, and it, it's hard. And, and so this feeds into things we'll talk about later about um, how you make decisions like this in terms of who you marry. But um, it's, there, there is such a thing, and I know from personal experience, there is such a thing as a, as a woman who has an imperfect husband who is stumbling towards being slightly less imperfect and just gives him, gives me, enough space to... It's like learning to ride your bike. You know, how many times do you need to fall off a bike before you can ride it for 50 yards in a straight line? Yeah? You've got to let him fall off, ladies. As long as he's trying to ride. As long as he's trying to lead. And in the context that Peter's writing to, this recognises, of course, the possibility, which is always a live possibility, that um, a Christian wife might have an unbelieving husband. It's easy to see how that might happen, either through... Uh, foolishness, frankly, or, or, or through a wife gets converted and a husband doesn't. This happened a fair amount in the early church. Paul refers to it in 1 Corinthians 7. And Peter says, look, how, how is a husband who's not a Christian going to discover that there's something special about this Jesus character that his wife has now gone and fallen in love with? How is he going to discover this? Well, it's by his wife's respectful and gracious, pure conduct. So, like, his wife, before she became a Christian, used to be like all the other wives who just gossiped and backbited and... Um, just mean and snide the whole time behind his back. And now she's changed. I remember when we first got 
Um, we, we were married for a few years before we had children. When we were expecting our first child, we went to antenatal classes. And this was the first time, really, that Nicole and I had met for a substantial period of time with unbelieving couples. It's fascinating. Um, because what happened, we got to know about four or five other uh, couples, and they're, um, they're not Christians, and they're expecting babies, and we're all talking about baby stuff. And then what would happen is, like, the guys would go out for a beer together, and the ladies would go out for a drink together, and um, it was just absolutely fascinating. Guess what the guys talked about? Her oh, indoors. She's always whinging. She, she, she won't let me go and play football anymore. She says I've got to look after her all the time because she's pregnant. Yeah, and then, so I went out for a beer with the guys, and Nicole went out for a beer with the ladies. and Not a beer with the ladies, probably a, a dry martini or orange juice or something. We were pregnant. I'm supposed to drink too much. And, they come back and, and we realized that we'd, we'd sat for two hours in the company of all these people complaining about their spouses. Like it's all they could seem to find to talk about. It's so painful. So you imagine what happens. A lady gets converted in this kind of situation. Suddenly, um, verse 2, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. It's a very, very difficult situation for a woman to be in. It's not a situation you'd want to try to get in. Occasionally you will meet people in this situation. First Peter chapter 3 is where she needs to spend a lot of time. Be subject to your husbands. Now, this is connected with verse 5. We'll come back to verses 3 and 4 in a moment. It's connected with verse 5. Let me read verses 5 and 6 to you, and you'll see the connection. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their husbands, better, their own husbands. Emphasizes women are not called to submit to every man in the same way they're called to submit to their husbands. Um, in fact, they're not, women are not generally called to submit to every man at all. Um, women, wives are called to submit to their husbands, period. By submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Notice, submitting again, subject, in that sense of leaving space for him to lead like a man should. Gentlemen, we're coming to that. And the obvious question that arises from this, look at verse 6. What's the obvious question that arises from this? What does it say? As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. The scriptures teach that the pattern for godly wives submitting to their husbands includes what Peter here describes as, quote, calling him Lord, just like Sarah called her husband Abraham Lord. And you might reasonably ask, huh? <laughs> like, what the blazes on earth, goodness gracious me, is that all about, you might say? I mean, and, and that's a legitimate question at a certain level, isn't it? Because, like, we have only one Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, so one that you didn't calling him out there on the golf course, Lord, what's he doing out on the golf course for a start? Well, maybe he's playing golf, that's okay, but if he's playing golf every day, husbands, etc., you see what I'm talking about. Right, now, the question therefore arises, why does Sarah call Abraham Lord? And what does it mean by Lord? Well, There is only one place in the Bible where Sarah calls Abraham Lord. It's in Genesis chapter 18. It's during the narrative of the Lord promising the birth of Isaac. And if you know that narrative, well, let me tell you, that is not a narrative in which Sarah appears as a doormat. Sarah is a sprightly lady, and never is she more sprightly than when she's having that conversation with Abraham and with the Lord about the birth of Isaac. She's spirited, and she's witty, and she's fully engaged in this conversation. This is, not another, this is not a doormat sneaking in through the back door. No pun intended. Um, this is 
that it doesn't mean just do what he says. It doesn't mean under the thumb. It must mean something else. So what does Lord mean? What does Lord mean? It strikes me that there are basically three answers to this. The first is completely wrong, the second is partly right, and the third is really the right answer. The first one which is completely wrong is this idea of domineering, tyrannical ownership. Now Jesus said that's a worldly idea of lordship. The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over their subjects, and you're not to be like this. Men, women, anybody at all. Whatever lord means, it doesn't mean domination. Now, the second possibility, and there is something in this, there is something... um, in what Peter's saying, which connects with this. Lord can be an English translation of a Greek word, which is just a term of respect. It translates the Greek word kurios, which sometimes means something like what you mean when you say sir. Now, this is easier for you to understand than it is for English people, because we've stopped this term of politeness. But I've noticed the number of people who call me sir, just like all the time here in the South, you don't mean that I'm uh, a knight of the realm. Neither do you mean, presumably, um, neither do you mean that you're regarding me as a tyrant. It's just a term of, um, I guess, respect, isn't it? And there's a sense in which that kind of respect ought to be shown by a wife to a husband. Uh, By a husband, yeah, by a wife to a husband. Um, Now, I I think that's definitely true. And I've heard some of you ladies, I've heard you calling your husband sir. And I think that's wonderful and lovely. But notice, I don't think that can be the whole story. Because... The same respect that you show to him in calling him, yes, sir, she shows to you in calling you, yes, ma'am. Yeah? So that, if it's just about respect, then it's symmetrical, at least symmetrical. It's not just you, to, you respect him and he can you know, call you whatever he wants. There must be something else, in other words. There's something beyond that mere term of respect, significant though it is, which Peter is speaking of here when he says that uh, Sarah called him, Lord and wives are to imitate this. What is it? This, I think, is the fullest and most, uh, in, I guess, insightful, uh, well, is, is the fullest and richest answer to the question, what does it mean for Sarah to call Abraham Lord, for a, a wife to call her husband Lord? Who else do you call Lord? You may answer. God, correct. In particular, whom? Jesus, well done, correct. The Lord, in the New Testament context, small l-o-r, capital L, small o-r-d, refers to our Lord Jesus. So what a wife is to do in speaking to her husband, and therefore what a wife is to do in the way that she relates to her husband and encourages her husband to relate to her, is to keep signifying to him that he stands to her in the relationship of Christ to the church. Now, does that remind you of anywhere else in the Bible? Right? This is Peter's equivalent of Ephesians 5, where he, he, he thinks, we all think, and he thinks he's talking about husbands and wives, and he is talking about husbands and wives, and he gets to the end of that, that short passage in Ephesians 5, and he says, well, I'm talking about Christ and the church. And we all thought, what? what you, where did you change the subject? And he didn't change the subject. When he's talking about Christ and the church, he's talking about husbands and wives because the relationship between husbands and wives ought to mirror the relationship between Christ and the church. How ought it to mirror the relationship between Christ and the church? What does the Lord do for his church? Dies for her. What does the Lord do for his church? Concerned 
for her holiness. What does the Lord do for his church? Everything necessary to ensure her greatest joy, her greatest fruitfulness, her greatest faithfulness. What ought a husband to do for a wife? Everything necessary to ensure her greatest joy, her greatest holiness, her greatest happiness, her greatest fruitfulness as a human being. And the way that a wife ought not only to uh, relate to him, but even to speak to him, ought to signify that. I don't think it means that, guys, you should ask her to call you Jesus. See, it's all the young people are laughing and none of the adults are. And why is that? See, because they know from experience how serious it is. I don't think the issue is uh, Julie and Jesus, not Julie and Jean. That's, it's the expectation that should pervade your relationship is that you look to him to do for you the kinds of things that Jesus should do, that Jesus has done for you. Uh, wife is encouraged to look to her husband to care, to look to her husband to provide, to look for, to her husband to give himself and to lay down his life for himself. And that means, lest any of you should think I'm not going to get to this point, let me say it loudly and clearly. Ladies, this is the criterion by which you should choose a husband. Do not, under any circumstances whatsoever, settle for somebody who you think will settle for treating you less well than Jesus treats you. If you think that you're that boy with, who goes to the gym and has got the big arms and the fast car is not going to treat you like Jesus, he will make you miserable. If you think, whoever he is, that he will do everything he can to be like Christ to you, then you might be on to something. And don't let him out of your sight. That's a question. You, and this is why you need other people's help to decide this. You, you're, a, you're a wise girl if you ask your dad or you ask your older brother or you ask your, fa- or your pastor to, to check. Because... Um, Many waters cannot quench love and um, it has a habit of so overwhelming your emotional faculties that it will blind your rational faculties. Seriously. Um, I'm in love with my wife and it leaves me starry-eyed and crazy. Um, The emotions that you will feel when you fall for him will be so overwhelming that you won't be capable of seeing anything wrong with him. And there might not be anything wrong with him. Right? But there might be. And if there is, you need somebody to point it out to you. It might not be irredeemable. It might be that he just needs somebody to help him to shape up a bit. And that's fine. But don't trust yourself at the point in your life when your emotions are so utterly overwhelming. Verses 3 and 4. Let me read this. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. We come now to 
probably one, wouldn't you say, one of the most misunderstood texts in the whole New Testament? And actually, it, in the context of what we're talking about, it's one of the most useful ones. This is the text which teaches you how to attract the kind of guy who will be like Jesus. Men are attracted to beauty. Sorry to break it to you, but, but beauty comes in different shapes and sizes. Beauty comes Hollywood style, and beauty comes gentle and quiet spirit style. And Hollywood beauty attracts the kind of man who likes Hollywood beauty. Gentle and quiet spirit beauty attracts the kind of woman who attracts the kind of man who likes gentle and quiet spirit beauty. Let's just look at this in a bit more detail. Um, the big misreading of this text comes in verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing. The way that people normally misunderstand this, and it's kind of understandable, they think, well, does this mean I'm not supposed to braid my hair? Okay, we could... We could if, uh, I don't want to embarrass the ladies, but we could have some fun, couldn't we? Like, let's stand up if you've got braided hair. <laughs> stand up if you're wearing gold. Stand up if you're wearing clothing. No, it's a joke. <laughs> Teenagers. Right. No, no, but you see the point, don't you? The issue that Peter is addressing is not, you shouldn't braid your hair. Because if he was saying you shouldn't braid your hair, he'd also be saying you shouldn't wear gold and you shouldn't wear clothing. And with the best one in the world, ladies, if you stop wearing clothing, that won't help you to attract the right kind of guy. Seriously, it won't help you to attract the right kind of guy. And it might get you thrown off camp. The point is not that you shouldn't... I, and these guys aren't laughing now, and you all are. Again, it's like, sorry, maybe we should just stop now. Um, I'm, I'm never going to be invited back again. It's just the end. No, the point is not that you shouldn't wear these things, but you shouldn't let your adornment be these things. These shouldn't be the things that you depend on for the beauty which you're hoping and praying will make you attractive for the right kind of guy. Right? The point is, verse 3, not external appearance, but, verse 4, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So make yourself precious in God's sight, and then somebody who sees in the way God sees will think, wow, precious woman. What a precious woman. And you don't want a man who evaluates beauty like Hollywood evaluates beauty. Do you? Sure? Keep telling yourself that. If you want a man who evaluates beauty in the way that God does, then make yourself beautiful in the way that God evaluates beauty to be. Right? It's ironic because this text, which is so derided by um, feminists, is actually a really strongly pro-feminist text. In, in, in the right sense of feminist. There's a, there's, a neg there's a wrong sense of feminist, right? But there's a, there's a sense of feminist which is concerned to... Um, push back against misogyny and domineering husbands who are only after one thing. Right? So what this text says is, you know, guys, there, there's more than one kind of beauty. And the beauty that matters is, well, there's Hollywood beauty, and then there's the beauty that God cares about. And the beauty that matters is the beauty that God cares about. Okay? It's the beauty that will endure. Ladies, um, I'm not going to tell you how beautiful you are. What I will tell you is that in 50 years' time, Hollywood's no longer interested. But the kind of husband you should be looking for still will be. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. That's how the word adorn is used elsewhere in the Bible. Adorn is used 
in 2 Chronicles 3 verse 6 where Solomon adorned the house of God. In um, Luke 21 where the temple is adorned with noble stones and offerings. And it's adorned with those things, stones that made the temple beautiful and, and the gold that made it so precious, made it precious in God's sight. And the tragedy in Jesus' day is that the heart had gone out of the leaders of the temple. But to adorn is to is to give it the beauty of holiness. The people of God in Revelation 21 verse 2 are adorned by the living God, adorned with glory, adorned with beauty, and they're beautiful because they're holy. They're attractive because they're beautiful, because they're holy. And Hollywood stops after attractive because they're beautiful. You've got to choose, ladies, you've got to decide what kind of man you want to attract. And the Bible says you better start thinking about attracting the kind of guy who you can submit to, verses 1 and 2, who you can call Lord, in the sense of, like your saviour, Jesus, verses 5 and 6, which means, like, a, a guy like that, I, let me, I'll be blunt again, <laughs> I'll burn my bridges now, right? So, um, a guy like that actually isn't going to be interested in a gossip. Yeah? He's not going to be interested in somebody who's spectacularly Hollywood beautiful, who's always backbiting. Yeah? He's not. If, if you're spectacularly Hollywood beautiful, then be really, really careful. Because if you're not gentle and quiet spirit, you'll find all kinds of guys trailing after you, fighting them off with a sharp stick. Very difficult. And see why you need your fathers and your big brothers to protect you and to give you a little bit of wisdom. And you can see why you need 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-6 to 6, to show you what kind of beauty to aspire to so that you're attractive to the right kind of guy. Okay? Gentlemen, only one verse for you. Less to think about, but fewer excuses, therefore, for failing to think very hard about it. Verse 7, here goes. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honour to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. A key phrase here, it seems to me, if you look at the start of the verse, likewise, husbands, here it is, the key phrase, live with your wives in an understanding way. The showing honour thing we'll come to in a moment. That's also very significant. Live with your wives in an understanding way. There are a couple of subtle, interrelated things going on here. First, it's about showing understanding. You know how sometimes what happens, somebody says something, and you kind of clock it in the back of your mind, but you don't say anything, you don't register? You're sitting at the kitchen table having breakfast, and your mum says, you got your stuff for... Um, for uh, Cricket practice, no, they would never say that. Um, you, you got your stuff, bags packed ready for going to see Grandma this afternoon, and you're like, oh. so did you hear me? So, oh, yeah, um, yeah sorry, um, uh, yeah, yeah, I was. No, you see, what the problem was, it wasn't that you didn't hear, it wasn't that you didn't understand, it's that you didn't show your understanding, yeah, because your mind is still sort of floating off somewhere else, whether your mind's floating first thing in the morning. Now, you do need to learn, gentlemen, to show empathy to show gentleness, to show understanding. However, more likely, what's going on here is not that Peter's assuming you already have that understanding, you need to show it. Peter is warning you, gentlemen, of the danger that you don't have that understanding in the first place. Peter is concerned that you don't know how women tick. Peter is concerned that you might not know how women feel. 
Peter is concerned that you might not care how women feel. And he wants you to learn, and this is a more literal translation, to live together according to knowledge. Yeah, to, to develop a kind of understanding, to develop a kind of understanding that you currently don't have. Gentlemen, they're different from you. In all kinds of ways. You won't fully come to appreciate this, and all the husbands at the back are sort of like, this, and then their wives are going, and they're going, not you won't fully come to understand this for decades after you're married, but if you don't start now at least trying to register this and trying to develop this kind of understanding, it's going to be harder to understand the differences and then harder to be considered. How will you learn to understand how she feels? How will you learn to understand how the relationship looks from her angle? It's not really possible to get this, but just you can think about a simple thing. You can think about a simple thing. Like... How might it look to a young lady for me to do something as trivially easy as just, I can see I'm going to get to the door at the same time as her. Just step back and hold it open. How does it feel? And how might it feel when you can kind of see her out of the corner of your eye, but you're talking to your friends, and so you just do what you all do if you're a bunch of guys coming off the football field, and you just kind of pile through the door, and poor girl's like, <laughs> and splattered against the door. How might that feel? And if you don't know ask your sister or something. Okay? And you'll soon discover, it's like, yeah, it's really annoying when you do that all the time. Yeah? I, wonderful experience. And we'd never actually spotted this until we came to America. And I, I think I, I, it's an encouragement to know. I'm actually, I'm, I know I'm talking to people who in lots of ways have been thinking these things through before. But, you know, we got... Um, my wife remarked on the fact that we got out of somebody's car and we've been travelling in a car with a bunch of uh, one of the other parents and some of their sons and I think one of their daughters and um, my wife couldn't get to the door quick enough. She's sitting in the seat, okay? She couldn't get to the door handle quick enough because one of the guys had got out of the car, opened his door, closed his door, and opened her door before she got there. It's like, whoa, that's nice. It's like, and it shows that like the guy cares. It's like. And that feels, that feels like you're thinking. And what happens when you start to do little things like that is you, you get yourself in a frame of mind where you start to notice big things. Recall the illustration of the dance again. Like you're, you're, trying, to, you're trying to dance in a way that you anticipate where her feet are going to be. And what's going to happen? Is it tomorrow night, the dance? <laughs> There's going to be so many times when the, the girl is kind of going to go... Oh. She's going to be stifling a yelp because you're going to tread on her feet. Like, please try not to do that. But, you know, her, her, her feet will be okay in a couple of days. But if you, if, you, you, if you end up married to somebody and you keep treading on her spiritual toes because you're, you've got no idea how she feels about anything, you can really make a mess of things, guys. So, so in the smallest things and the, the slightly less small things and all the opportunities you can, try to just think, what, what does this feel like, my sister's? What does this feel like for the girls at church? What does this feel like for my mum? We'll come to that in a, in a minute or two, the significance of your relationship with your mothers. Um, okay, so let's look again a bit more. Verse 7. Um, Live with your wives in an understanding way, trying to develop that understanding, showing honour to the woman as the weaker vessel. Let's think about this. Verse 7 describes the woman as the weaker vessel. Now again, we've got to try and detach ourselves from the... The, the cultural connotations of that. If somebody in the, in the contemporary world describes a person as weak, right, is that a compliment or a criticism? 
That's criticism, right? Yeah, so, so it's very hard for us to detach ourselves from that instinct. Um, now, apart from the obvious biological fact about it, the arm wrestle thing, I bet there's not a woman in this room who could beat most... Well, I mean, I reckon if you lined up... You had a whole bunch of arm wrestle competitions. You'd probably get... You might get a tiny bit of overlap between the, the 17-year-old girls who've been playing lots of basketball and the 12-year-old boys, but there'd be a tiny little overlap, really, seriously. But apart from that obvious point, weaker in the Bible is not bad. What does the Bible say about the weak? Just think about that for a second. Siphon through in your mind all the biblical texts about weakness. Weakness is not a criticism in the Bible. Weakness is a signal that particular care is to be taken in dealing with this person who has a weak conscience, 1 Corinthians. Particular honour is to be shown to people because they're weak. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 22. The weaker members of the body are worthy of greater honour. It's not that they're weak and, well, I guess, well, you know, loser, but okay. It's no. Weakness. Translate it in your mind as worthy of greater honour. Now, what happens if you get this wrong? Let's, let's just imagine, I mean, I've been sketching a picture in, in, a more, in a one-to-one relationship contest, but let's try and imagine in a wider scale what would happen if you got this wrong and you started, men and women started to treat each other as if they're the same and the men started to forget that the women are weaker emotionally in lots of ways, weaker physically in lots of ways. I'm not saying that women aren't emotionally strong. There's a kind of emotional strength. I know all that. But, but it's a... Let me, let me, that emotional thing let me, when husbands and wives have an argument the wife ends up crying right that's what I mean I'm not saying emotionally pathetic I'm just saying that's just how things work and so gentlemen if you, if you think that's not true you're going to trample on her and the way you're going to trample on her is the emotional correlate of this can you think of a situation in modern America where men have started to ignore the fact that women are weaker I can, the military most combat roles since 2013 in your armed forces have been open to women as well as men at least until Trump came along they were I don't know whether he's changed things he might have rolled things back a bit but I looked at some statistics these are the military's your military's own figures for the effects of that in terms of the injuries and so on that have uh, arisen from placing women and men in the same kinds of combat roles. Now, if you subtract the effects of pregnancy, here are the figures, and I'll leave you to make your own mind up. Women are 30% more likely to be hospitalized than men. They're more likely to be injured. They're more likely to need medical evacuation. They're they're 50% more likely to seek the services of a walk-in clinic at their base. They're twice as likely to experience a stress fracture. Well, who knew carrying an 80-pound backpack, for goodness sake, they're 50% more likely to suffer psychological adjustment disorder on returning home from active service. Right? And you've got this idiocy of men who think they're liberated placing women in a position where they're required to do things that, frankly, they're not physically and emotionally wired to do. It doesn't mean that women don't have emotional strength. It doesn't mean, actually, that women don't have physical strength. It just means they're different from guys in that respect. And you ignore that, gentlemen, at their peril. You'll be fine, initially, until you ruin enough other people's lives that nobody wants anything to do with you, but they will suffer immediately. 
And it's actually, in a funny kind of oh, tragic way, it takes tremendous bravery from those women who've been so tragically misled by the culture to think this is the right thing to do. But it's gutlessness, spinelessness from the men. Don't do that to anybody. So just a couple of final thoughts, um, just to connect this with some contemporary situations. And then we'll conclude. Um, I want, uh, first, have you, um, who's come across the Me Too movement? Hands up. Yeah, okay, a little bit of that. Let me say a word or two about that. Um, the Me Too movement, I mean, makes many claims. One of the claims that um, has been highlighted by the Me Too movement is the, well, at least what they're saying on the surface is we want to highlight the extent to which men have been abusing women in all walks of life, in marriage, in the media, in the professional life, in the film industry, and so on. And um, I think it's really interesting. Um, how do you respond to that claim? I've been, I haven't really taught or spoken much about this at all, but I've, I've been watching how reformed Christians have responded to the Me Too movement. It's really interesting. So what they've done, I've noticed two responses. First, to point out the abject hypocrisy of Hollywood, Hollywood, right, um, claiming to be drawing the world's attention to the horrible spectre of women being abused. Well, for goodness sake. Hollywood, you know how that industry works. They're the last people on earth who should be giving lectures to anybody about not abusing women. Hypocrisy, first thing people point out. Second, um, the more worldviewish types will point out the neo-Marxist ideology which has overtaken the movement. It's all now about identity politics and so on, right? In other words, they criticize the worldview of the people who've hijacked the issue. Now, I just think that's really interesting. I think it's all true, obviously. Like, obviously, Hollywood is hypocritical. Like, who knew? Obviously, the Me Too movement has been overtaken by neo-Marxist ideologues. Everything has been overtaken by neo-Marxist ideologues. There's nothing left, almost. Half the church has been overtaken by the same movement. But I do think it's kind of interesting. Like, has anybody noticed that in some churches, some women get abused? It's just kind of like, talk about pick the soft target and beat up Hollywood. Well, is it possible that there's a, a woman or two, a wife or two in your church who's being emotionally neglected by her husband? Right. And I just think it's really interesting that we, the, the, the reformed guys pick the soft target again. It's much easier, let me tell you, it's much easier to preach a really nice fiery sermon about Hollywood hypocrisy or to lay into the Marxist ideologies of our age. It's much easier to do that than to front up to the guy whose wife looks just a little bit more emotionally shrunken in the last six months and just ask, listen, is everything okay at home? Because that, that takes courage from the pastors. That takes courage to do that. I just find it intriguing that a lot, not all, a lot of the responses to the Me Too movement have been the kind of responses that wouldn't do a huge amount of good to any women who were actually suffering. Um, yeah, and, and I think the reason is, like I said, it's, it's easier to preach a sermon about somebody else than to talk to the guys in your congregation. So that's the first thing. Second thing, well, I, I thought about not saying this, but I've decided against it, so I'm going to say it. Last time I was here, I talked about anybody who wants to court my daughters at any point in the future. My daughters are far too young. They're 13 and 11. But apparently, um, somebody remembered what I'd said. Who can remember what... We, we, um, I talked about the book of Judges. Do you remember the singing test? Can anybody remember the singing test? What was the singing test? Anybody want to tell me? Yeah. Yeah. If, if a guy wants to court one of my daughters, we're going to church, I'm sitting two rows in front of him, and if I can't hear him sing, it's off immediately. And the reason is because a man needs to be a leader. A man needs to be strong. A man needs to be willing to stand out in a crowd 
a man needs to be willing to be noticed. And being noticed comes with a kind of emotional sense of exposure. Being a leader leaves you exposed because you're leading. And it's the same feeling that you get when you can hear your voice above everybody else's. So a good test of whether a man is a leader is the singing test. Okay? So, but I haven't got only one test. I've got a whole battery of tests. Okay? And the second test I want to tell you about tonight, if you want, I'll tell you about the, um, uh, all the other tests some other time. But the, this test I want to tell you about is the crying test. It's the tears test. So we go home from church and he's belting out, and can it be that I... So great, 10 out of 10 for the singing. Great. So what did you do last time you saw your sister crying? What did you do last time you saw that your mum was a bit upset? Not, what do you think you should have done? Or, what are you now wishing that you'd thought of doing? <laughs> what did you do? You see, because I don't want to know that you're just the kind of guy who can do five one-armed chin-ups in ten seconds and has got a handshake like a mechanical digger and can sing like Pavarotti. Yeah? I want to know what's going to happen when my little girl is really upset. Girls get upset about things. Guys get upset about things. But girls get upset about things. And once she's married to you, like, I'm not going to be able to help, am I? Especially if you live in America. I mean, what am I going to do then? Right? So, I, so I need to know that you can help her. I need to know that you're gentle. I've I got to say, I, I have been really deeply impressed by the, um, all the guys I've spoken to. Some I've just shaken your hand once, and man, that was enough. Uh, <laughs> others, we've had longer conversations. I've been really impressed, without a single exception, by the, just in broad terms, the caliber of the guys. The guys? And I know I've not spoken to all of you. This is not an implicit criticism of, men I've, of the men I've not spoken to. I th- every one of you, I, you know, you're, you seem to me like, like great lads, great young men. But a gentleman needs to be a gentle man. And I don't know that about you. You need to check that about yourself. So the tears test. You're like, oh man, three weeks ago, now I think about it, my sister, she didn't look so good. Yeah, you missed that opportunity. Yeah, you mi- you're too busy practicing your chin-ups. Yeah, well, don't miss it next time. Don't miss it next time. Learn, gentlemen, to be a gentle man. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus, who modelled the kind of manhood which it's a privilege and a delight to submit to and who modelled the combination of strength and gentleness which all men ought to aspire to. And we pray, Father, that uh, according to who we are, you would give us those virtues which will make us all who are married better husbands, better wives, and these young men and women here, whom we pray you would find godly, faithful partners, husbands and wives for. Make them godly, faithful wives and husbands. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.